Welcome back to Awesome People Talking. I am your host, Braden Carlisle. Today is a very special episode. We have Mac King joining us. Mac has a residency at Harris Hotel and Casino in Las Vegas. If you go on the internet and you say, I'm going to Vegas, other than Penn & Teller, what's a magic show that I need to see? The only answer you'll get is Mac King. The only answer you need is to go see Mac King. He is one of the best comedy magicians there's ever been. Before we start, I'd love to take a quick note and say that I have published a book. It's available on penguinmagic.com. It's titled Agree to Disagree by Britton Carlisle. It features Mac King and 15 other great magicians that offer advice and give their opinions about a divisive opinion that they have about magic. All right, let's get back to the episode. Please welcome Mac King. Thank you, Mac, for joining us on the podcast. And I just want to start by asking the question that every magician gets asked at least a thousand times. How did you get started in magic? Uh, you know, both my uh, both my grandfathers, uh, my mom's dad and my dad's dad, knew a couple of magic tricks. Uh, I have a very vivid memory of my uh, my father's dad, my grandpa, uh, Pax. What was his name P A X and. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I was like four or five years old. I mean, I was little, and but I still, I mean, I can still remember his kitchen counter that he had uh, set, picked me up and set me on. And this is how long ago it was. He, uh, it was that trick where you uh, break a toothpick or a match in a handkerchief, mm-hmm. you know, and and it's unharmed. And he always carried a pocket handkerchief, you know, uh, white pocket handkerchief and he took out his handkerchief and he took like i said this is how long ago it was he took a kitchen match that he used to light his stove that's how long ago i was five <laughs> <laughs> and uh he uh he wrapped that up and put it in my hands and i broke it and i felt it break and i heard it break and i mean i can see that kitchen i can see that kitchen counter i can that memory is just very vivid for me and opening up that handkerchief and that match was unharmed was mind-blowing and so uh and then he showed me how to do it oh cool and yeah fantastic and then uh my mom's dad had uh like three or four magic books at his house he had a um i shoot i forget the name of it but it was a book a little magic book uh by walter gibson he had a magic book by uh herman that you know it was really mysterious to me because it was like Okay, here's how you trick out your tail. You know, you have pockets in the tails of your coat. You have pockets in each breast, secret pockets. And, you know, I mean, all these things. I'm like, oh, my God, I can't be a magician. It's too complicated. Look at all this <laughs> crap you got to do to your clothes. Uh, so he had that. But the main thing he had was a book. Everybody knows the uh, Amateur Magician's Handbook by Henry Hay. But he also wrote another one called Learn Magic. And my grandfather had that. And... Uh, man, that was a huge influence on me. I mean, I've read that book, I don't know, 20 or 30 times mm-hmm. over the course of that. But that was, so he had like three or four little magic books, and I he would do, uh, you know, and he knew a couple of tricks. He was a, uh, he, when I was, by the time I was born, he owned a, like a service station in rural Kentucky. But uh, before that, he was a representative for Standard Oil and then Shell Oil and, drove around Kentucky selling, you know, oil. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, so he was a sales guy, and so he used magic a little bit, you know, when he would make sales calls. And oh, cool, cool. So he was interested in magic. And so he would do a trick for me, you know, when I would visit. And, and But he wouldn't explain it to me. He, he, would, he would say, you know, the secret. I learned that in one of those books. But he wouldn't tell me which one. And so I would spend the rest of my visit, you know, pouring through these books trying to find the secret to the trick that he had <laughs> fooled me with and you know so it was great i mean i i learned a lot of other tricks looking for that specific trick and uh you know it wasn't until i was much older that i realized that it wasn't you know his intention wasn't for me to be a magician his intention was for me to be a reader right and you know so it was a you know it's kind of a secret scam to get me to read <laughs> which was great and that you know it, it really had a you know, I don't know how much that affected me, but I mean, I I'm a lifelong reader, not just of magic books, and you know, part of that I think is due to him. Mm-hmm. So it's really your grandparents that got you into magic and reading. Yeah, yeah. magic and reading. Yeah, mm-hmm. two of my favorite things. <laughs> 
Yeah, and I correct me if I'm wrong, but don't you do You're wrong. Okay. Oh, well. No. <laughs> <laughs> don't you do um book drives at at elementary schools? Uh, I do. Yeah, that's I mean, uh, you know, that's uh, and again, I think that's partly because of my grandfather Elwood, my mom's uh, dad. Mm-hmm. And he yeah, we do a uh, book drive all of February here in Las Vegas. You know, I partner with a couple of different places. It's different every year, but uh, but people, you know, depending on who it's with, like we did Sammy's Wood-Fired Pizza, is, I think that's a national chain, but mm-hmm. uh, I've worked with them a bunch, and, you know, people bring in books, and then they get a free messy Sunday or, you know, whatever, depending on the partner. Right. And so we collect all these books, and then um, in Nevada Reading Week, which is uh, in March, I go to the Clark County School District picks schools for me to go to every day and they pick the you know the most at risk schools and I go in and do some tricks and read some stories and then every kid goes home with a uh, book to keep and um I mean it's like christmas for those you know the, we yeah. line all the books up and then they come up a class at a time and get to pick a book and it's you know yeah. for many of these kids it's their the first book that they've ever owned of their own and which is sad and right. remarkable um but they're you know it's, it's pretty cool i like doing it yeah that's really awesome um so that's uh your grandparents were your inspiration for getting into magic and i need to know what's the inspiration for the suit <laughs> well uh you know it's funny i i say that it's my grandfather's suit and mm-hmm. that's kind of a tribute to learning magic from you know their inspiration for being gotcha. a magician. But also, it is true. Um, <laughs> my grandfather Elwood, um, the guy with the magic books, um, I was looking for something to wear in the show, and I was went up in his attic. I was up in his attic and found an old suit of his that I loved and um, started wearing it. And I... I I think I went through three of those, two or three, at least two and maybe three Mm -hmm. of those. But, I mean, he'd already worn them, right? But they were up in his attic. And uh, I uh, then I went to a costume designer. Those those suits weren't plaid. Uh, They were just cool old suits Mm -hmm. that I liked. But I uh, went to a costume designer in L.A., and uh, she... She's the one who did. Um, I met her because she did uh, Lance Burton's uh, tuxes for his bird act. Gotcha. And so um, I went to her, Margaret Rose, and is her name. And so she came out and saw my show, you know, in LA three or four times. And then she uh, drew some sketches and picked out a bunch of material and everything she picked was plaid and I hadn't worn plaid at the time at that <laughs> and so and that was and she said this is how kind of I vision you and she you know she and she went and got um these swatches of plaid material and some shoes and so she was really helpful in putting that together and uh once I started doing it you know uh, it sort of became trademarky you know i mean it was right part of me hey i think she did a great job i think the plaid works wonders well thank you i mean <laughs> she yeah but uh, she yeah so she's she's pretty smart she's done stuff for a lot of different people um mm-hmm. uh i think she did something like an original one of the original peewee herman costumes when oh wow was, yeah that's awesome uh so and i know she did some stuff for uh <laughs> you're too young to remember the, but uh, George Clinton and the Funkadelics and mm-hmm. a, a funk band that I love. So it was I was really surprised to see some stuff from that on her walls when I went in. I'm like, all right, <laughs> it's a woman for me. She... <laughs> nice. Well, I'd love to um, hear about how you transitioned from just maybe having magic as a hobby to bringing it to the next level and getting start getting paid for gigs and then taking it to like making it your career yeah um you know i mean the i started the same way as everybody you know doing 
wherever I could, birthday parties or whatever. And mm-hmm. um, then, um, and again, we go back to my grandfather. My grandfather Elwood was, uh, uh, you know, I, 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 I still have the first check I got for a show, and it was thirty-five dollars. Uh, I always say, I make a little joke. I got first birthday party I did was five dollars plus cake. First show I got paid with by check was thirty-five dollars, but no cake. Um, <laughs> And uh, that was for his Kiwan- my grandfather's Kiwanis Club. Oh, cool! And I would he would have me come in every year and do it. And so that was a you know, my uh, I don't know birthday parties, Kiwanis clubs, and you know you start doing those and you get a little money or no money and you know <laughs> whatever it is. And and then uh, when I was in. Yeah, yeah, let's. I, I'm. It all runs together. But I think I was in my my freshman year, sophomore year in college, and in the summers, uh, my last summer of high school or summer between high school and college, I started working in this. Started doing close-up magic in this, uh, the sort of the nicest restaurant in. Louisville, Kentucky, where I grew up, called 610 Magnolia. It still exists, and it's a beautiful, small little restaurant. Uh, it's changed ownership and shelves, chefs once one time since I'm there, but the, there's like a TV chef uh, who owns it now called Edward Lee, but the original guy was a named, guy named Ed Garber, and so I started doing magic in there, and then he asked me if I was interested, if I knew anybody who was interested in coming in during lunch and uh, doing some prep work. And I said, you know, I'd be interested in learning how to do this. And so I started coming in, uh, doing prep stuff for lunch at this really high-end restaurant and then doing close-ups there at night. And one day at lunch, uh, I'm there, uh, and Ed uh, gets a phone call and he says, it's for you. Well, gotten a phone call here before ever. Uh, and it was a guy uh, who owned an amusement park, a, a theme park in Kentucky called Tombstone Junction. Mm-hmm. And he uh, he had tracked me down because he had heard I w- had done some close-up at uh, Max and Irma's in Lexington, Kentucky. And so he had an opening at his place for a magician. He was firing the guy who was there. He wasn't pleased. (laughs) (laughs) And um, so I had been doing some shows, you know, with uh, Lance Burton, who also grew up in Kentucky, and he and I had been doing some shows together wherever we could. People's living rooms. I mean, it's amazing. I saw Lance Burton do his dub acting, you know, people's living rooms. Wow. before he was famous. Yeah, I mean, just wherever. And so we would just do shows wherever we could. And so anyway, this guy, Rick Stevens from Tombstone Junction, calls me at the restaurant and says, um, I'm looking for a magician. Are you the Mac King who magician? Yeah. Um, then uh, any chance you could come down tomorrow and audition? Uh, hey, can I have tomorrow off? <laughs> uh, yes. Uh, yeah, then I'll be there. Can I bring my buddy? I don't care. Bring whoever you want. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so Lance and I drive down there the next morning, and we do a show for the you know for the patrons there. And he says, uh, "Can you guys start tomorrow?" Yes, we will. <laughs> so we worked the rest of the summer there, and then we worked. Uh, and that was kind of the beginning. So it was almost a whole summer, and then two more summers he and I worked there together. And I was in college at the time. So was he. He was at the University of Louisville, and I was in Minnesota, a little liberal arts college um, mm-hmm. called McAllister College. And um, So we worked there in the summers for three summers, and uh, after those three summers, I think, Lance moved to L.A. I was still in college. He was done, and uh, 
he moved to L.A. and I stayed in school uh, another year, I guess. And then, uh, but I worked two more summers there at Tombstone Junction doing shows. And after, and one of those summers was after I got out of college. And uh, I, I graduated with a lovely degree in anthropology, so I wasn't really qualified to do anything. <laughs> Um, but you know, I had that summer, and then luckily for me, uh, comedy clubs, you know, started springing up around the country and outside of New York, Chicago, and L.A. You know, kind of for the first time. You know, they didn't really exist until you know the early '80s, mm-hmm. and um, outside of New York, L.A., and Chicago, and and coincidentally, one of the um, biggest bookers in the Midwest, one of the guys who started, you know, putting together long chains of one-nighters and weekend rooms and whatever in you know places that had traditionally had music, uh, was a fellow named Tom Sobel, and he was based in Louisville, Kentucky, where I was living. And after college, I moved back to Louisville, and. Uh, so uh, I started getting some work as a middle act in you know some a bunch of crappy little clubs that Tom booked, and it was a great training ground. So I've been really lucky. I've never had any other um, job other than you know that brief stint as a you know cook, a, you know chef, backup guy, you know prep guy at this high end restaurant. Um, other than when I was in high school, um, I worked in a magic shop, um, but I don't really count that as a job. That was just me reading books and demonstrating magic tricks. (laughs) Great. So I've, I've been lucky. I've never really had any other, since I got out of college, I've never had any job, but being a magician. That's awesome. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, not that I didn't starve, you know, for many, many years. I mean. When I met my wife, I met my wife at a show. Uh, she was a volunteer from the audience, and she was in college at that time. I was I was out, but mm-hmm. uh, I met her in '83, and you know, I moved in with her pretty quick. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, you know, it's, I mean, it's the old joke, but it was really true for me. What do you call a magician uh, without a girlfriend? Homeless. <laughs> and, nice. So yeah, I lived with a you know I wouldn't say a series, but a few uh, different women over the course of before I met my wife, because uh, <laughs> I was uh, you know struggling to pay the rent and on the road all the time. Uh, but you know, in many ways, I I miss that time. Yeah. But I've been really lucky. Mm-hmm. Like and I said, I've got never had it. Your, your question was, how did I make the transition? But there wasn't really much of a transition. I've never really had any other job. I've been really, you know, I'm right. one of the really lucky ones. Right. So you just basically, like, you just took everything you could get, right? Everything. Yep. I mean, every, you know, it's like, do you want to do this? Well, is it surrounded and are the sight lines awful and the sound terrible and the lights bad? I'm in. <laughs> but I mean, it's true. I mean, it, it, I'm really thankful for all those things. And when I was in, after, uh, um, when I was by myself at Tombstone Junction, just doing the shows, the last two years, I was just it was just me, and uh, I took a, I took out the we had, we used to have like a little um, recorded intro, you know. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the. It was the place was called the Red Garter Saloon, but it was really just a you know little hamburger shack, <laughs> snack bar, you know at the back of the room and mm-hmm. table chairs where people could eat lunch and watch a magic show, and um, we had a little voiceover intro, you know, when the show would start, and I got rid of that when it was just me, and just started walking out cold starting the show without any introduction or anything. And because, I mean, I was trying to make it as hard on myself as I could. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, making it, giving, you know, having as much to overcome as I could 
in the because I I was hoping that 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 wouldn't be my final stop in show business, and so I felt like there was more to learn if I if it was hard. Mm-hmm. The harder it was, the more the quicker anyway that I would learn my little lessons. <laughs> mm-hmm. And did you find that to be true? Well, it's, I don't know. I mean, it's hard to say whether that was so. yeah. the right choice or not and whether it made, made any difference but it certainly made the show harder at the very beginning when i would walk <laughs> out cold it was way harder than if you have a voiceover introduction mm-hmm. but um you get used to you know that uncomfortableness at the beginning which i used to really even cultivate more than i do now i, I mean it used <laughs> to be i was i would really try to start the show um on as low a level as possible, you know, have people like, oh, crap, why are we going to even watch this? This is going to be awful. <laughs> uh, on the theory that, you know, if they if the expectations were really, 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 really low at the beginning, if I, you know, uh, if by the end they were really, really happy, you know, I mean, that's a nice long journey that you're taking people on. And um, so I always felt like the longer that, trip you know you know from the peak from the valley of despair to the <laughs> peak of ecstasy if you can get them you know take them that far that's really great for the audience i mean that's a nice ride to take people on and mm-hmm. so um i used to try to start as low as possible and over the years i've kind of changed my thought about that um that you know i'm saying okay like like if you can if you're going to go on a journey and you start at negative five and you can take them on a, you know, a 10 point journey, you'll get up to five. Mm-hmm. If, if that makes any sense, mm-hmm. you get up to positive five, right? If you're taking them on a 10, you know, 10 point journey. And, right. it, and so, but then I figured out, uh, or I, I felt like, all right, suppose I can take them on a 10 point journey and that's all I can take them on is a 10 point journey. Well, if I start at three, then I can take them to thirteen, and that's better than five. Right. So, so I I changed my mind about that over the years, but I don't know whether whether any of those are right or whether they make any difference. But it's uh, it's certainly fun to think about and fun to experiment with. Mm-hmm. Well, I've seen your current show many times, and I love it. Well, thank you. Yeah, my favorite. Yeah. I think my favorite has to be the invisibility cloak. Yeah, <laughs> thanks. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, you know, it's funny that, you know, you talk about developing stuff and stuff that doesn't work. Uh, um, I, uh, when I was living in Louisville, um, I guess after I got out of college, yeah, maybe it was, in the, yeah, it must have been after I got out of college, starving. Um, I lived in this big house with a few other people and one of them was another magician a fellow named tom hamilton mm-hmm. and uh so one afternoon i was sitting in the living room reading and uh tom came tiptoeing in the room wearing this poncho and just tiptoed around the room and then left but right before he left the room he said that is right i am invisible <laughs> And then he left. And I'm, oh my God! I'm, and uh, I said, I'm. I was uh, doing a show that night in some club, a place called the Thirty Thirty Club. That I don't think exists anymore, but it was in Louisville there. Mm-hmm. And I said, Hey, I'm going to do that on stage tonight. If you don't mind, can I do that? Because <laughs> yeah, you're retarded. You can't do that. Though. That's stupid. And that was just for to make you laugh. And I said, Well, I think it'll make everybody laugh. <laughs> And so uh, I did it that night, put on the poncho, tiptoed around, and said, that is right, I am invisible. And <laughs> to silence, no laughs, no nothing. Oh, I would have been dying. <laughs> well, I don't know, maybe, but uh, but there was no, you know, it, it just wasn't right. It just, uh, and so I did it the next night, too, and maybe one more night, I don't know, but silence. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm like, well, all right, that was just a private joke with me and Tom. And, uh, it's, 
it's not funny for regular folks. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I put it aside. And, in the, and then, so probably 15, 10, 12, 15 years later, I don't know. I'm bad mm-hmm. about that. But I, uh, I was talking to my friend Pete Studebaker about the hand, handling of uh, cards across, and mm-hmm. the light bulb went off in my head saying, oh, cloak of invisibility. <laughs> and, uh, and I don't think I had called it the cloak of invisibility up until then. I mean, I, it, I don't know what I, you know, that I even had a name for it. But, um, but that just kind of all fell together. But it was, you know, it was percolating in my head for, you know, more than a decade. And so sometimes it just takes a long time mm-hmm. to get somewhere. Yeah, I just, I love that you build it up so much, too. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I've been, you know, over the course of the years, it's just, you know, it's evolved and changed. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I feel like my magic act is like uh, another uh, piece of evidence for evolution over creation. I mean, uh, it's certainly evolved more than it has cre- been created. I mean, over the course of the years. And right, and with a, a an act like yours that has evolved so much, and each piece seems to reference each other, is there any room to put something in or take something out? Well, that's the hard part. I mean, I do put stuff in over the you know, uh, I, not you know, I'm not very. I wouldn't say I'm prolific by any mm-hmm. means. I mean, it takes me a long time to get something in and a long time to um, uh, work on stuff, I mean, uh, before it goes in, usually. I mean, sometimes stuff goes in, you know, immediately you just think of something and you go, oh, yeah, that's good, and, uh, like a lightning bolt. But um, but for me, mostly, you know, there's I've got two things sitting here I can see in the corner of my office where it's like they've been sitting there for you know, it's one of them has been sitting in my brain for years, and mm-hmm. uh, I mean, literally twenty years. And <laughs> I just started kind of, all right, I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna try to figure out how to make this actually work. Uh, and then another one that's been in there for a while, and so they just I I have these things sitting here, and I think about them, and I think about them, and I don't you know I don't spend any. I'm I'm slow I'm, or I'm lazy or both. <laughs> um, so, but it, what your your question back to your question is, it, you know, it, it's to put something in. I have to take something out, right? And like you said, you know, if I there, it's such a um, uh, tightly constructed and interwoven show i mean it's not just a you know one of i mean that's one of the things i think i feel like sets my show apart is that it you know the whole show has a beginning a middle and end and you know everything builds up and there's Mm -hmm. stuff that doesn't you know starts at the beginning and doesn't resolve until the very end and there's references from to the in the middle to stuff that happened in the beginning and references to the end that's happened in the middle and the beginning and you know stuff doesn't make sense for a little while and then it all comes back and so it's all tightly interwoven and to take out something screws that whole thing up and so uh, and because i'm on a bit of a time constraint at harrah's i mean uh, um, the casino you know wants me to do a certain amount of time but not more than this and i'm also constrained the shows are at one and three so we have to have that one o'clock finished in time to get people out, mm-hmm. and then reseat for the three o'clock show. Um, so there's time constraints there. So I just can't make the show longer. So taking something out is tough, and I usually I, I haven't taken anything out. I have um, shortened up some of the things, you know, and uh, you know some of the tricks. I've, you know, almost cut the time in half. I mean, I used to. Wow. Uh, I used to have a, the card in the pocket with the thumb tie and the card in the cereal. That mm-hmm. routine used to be about ten minutes, and now it's about six. 
and uh, the money trick I do at the end of the show used to be more than 20 and now it's about 12 mm-hmm. and so I and when I'm doing a longer show like in a performing arts center which is where we just met but uh, <laughs> when I'm on doing one by myself and there's an intermission and you know I've got two 35 or 40 minute halves then I a lot of that stuff goes back in right so it's still there but it's not in the Las Vegas show where it's you know or a corporate show where it has to be an hour or gotcha. less and so I still have all that stuff but it's uh and so when I add something in I take out you know try to tighten up the other stuff or take out stuff as opposed so it's been kind of a good formula for me you know it forces me to edit the tricks that I already have and uh you know tighten them up as much as I can Mm -hmm. now talking about your stage show um you've had the show for a long time and I'm sure you've got like you you have how many people do you have on stage during your show how many different people uh let's see first there's a woman Mm -hmm. then there's a kid and then there's a dude (laughs) and then there's a couple and then there's another guy so six so six people on stage at each yeah you're talking about audience people right 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 yeah yeah so yeah so so Six people from the audience on the stage at each show. So that's 12 different spectators that you bring up each day. You, you've got to have some good tips on like how to, how to pick or how to interact with them when they're up there. Well, I mean, uh, the biggest thing is to... One thing I do, uh, or the, um, the first trick is a rope trick, and it's just me. There's no audience participation. Uh, and I've been doing that trick the longest of anything in the show been doing that a version of that you know i mean it's evolved like anything mm-hmm. else joe has evolved but uh it's basically uh, a trick that i've done since i was about 15 so uh you know that's like 40 years i've been doing that trick <laughs> uh <laughs> shit <laughs> and uh so i can really you know it, there's so much muscle memory and uh, you know script memory um, that that I don't have to pay much attention to the physical actions of that trick at all. You know, it almost just happens automatically, mm-hmm. and so I can spend that you know four minutes watching people. You know, I can see the first three or four rows in the in the showroom, and I'm watching people react. And I, I'm really I'm I pick uh, at least three of the people, three of those six people. I, uh, you know, I reserve the right to change my mind or you know right. make an adjustment <laughs> during the show. But I'm looking for three for the three of those people during that trick i'm watching people react and uh for the last guy that comes up um i uh i need a guy wearing a watch so i'm gonna mm-hmm. do a watch deal too so i'm looking i'm trying to spot a watch in the first few rows and i then and i'm trying to uh i'm looking at kids um you know in the summer and during spring break we're flooded with kids mm-hmm. so it's not a problem but um but like right now you know school's in and uh, you know it's the end of school so people feel a little sheepish about taking their kids out for the last you know they don't want them to miss testing or whatever right um so there's you know there'll be there'll be times when there's only a couple of kids and uh, or sometimes even none Oh, wow. And so I'm uh, scoping out. We have I have a code though with the guys who work for me who uh, seat the show. Um, and they uh, if there's a if there's not a kid, then I give I give away a, a either a book or a magic set to the kid who comes up. And mm-hmm. if there's not a kid, then it's I have two books. One's 
for older kids and adults and one's for everybody and uh so if there's if there's not a kid in the audience sitting where the gift for the kid will be uh, is the book for older kids and adults and that way i kind of know hey there's no kid in there in mm-hmm. the show today gotcha. no, no kid in the audience so we i i don't have to spend my time looking <laughs> <laughs> but, uh but so I'm looking for a kid who reacts, and I'm looking for a guy for a watch, a kid who reacts really strongly and has an expressive face. And then I'm looking for the first one, the woman um, who, who's going to come up for the card trick. And I'm looking for, you know, my show. I mean, the showroom at Harris is like 550 seats, mm-hmm. and but I've done it for you know 1,400, 1,500 people without video magnification and. Mm-hmm. It plays, I'm really proud that it plays pretty good for that size, you know, that big of a crowd, because it's really, you know, it's like a close-up magic show for a thousand (laughs) people. And uh, um, so, but part of that is my playing the show pretty broadly, but another part is picking good people whose expressions and reactions read uh, and serve uh to transmit that you know that um delight or hopefully uh or laughs or whatever you know whatever i'm trying to get across that that person on stage with me from the audience their reactions you know really help sell that those smaller tricks to the Mm -hmm. back of the room and so i'm looking for a really expressive you know woman who you know, who's sitting like with open posture and just, you know, somebody who has like a, you know, a really likable, outgoing personality, it seems like. Mm-hmm. And there's, and is comfortable with themselves. And, you know, sometimes you pick wrong, but you, you know, you get a sense over after doing it for a long, long time of who's good. And so, um, that's how I pick them, and um, then one of the things, this is like a, a weird little Jedi mind trick that I do. I don't know whether it makes any difference <laughs> at all, uh, but um, when anybody, every time I get somebody on stage with me, as early as I can, you know, usually when I'm helping them up the stairs, which I strongly recommend them you know i have i see people magicians go you know get somebody to help them and they and they just stand center stage while the person walks upstairs and walks up the stage walks across the stage and you know you can go you can go down the stairs and meet those people you know mm-hmm. that's that's what you know courtesy sort of demands and mm-hmm. so i i try to treat these people with real courtesy and um but the little Jedi mind trick is, as early as I can, usually when it when I'm helping him up the stairs or as we're coming back towards center, um, I want to make real as strong of an eye contact as I can, and I just sort of think to myself, hoping that I'm sending this thought somehow to them, uh, that everything is going to be great and they're going to have a really good time. And I try to say that just with my eyes. Without, I mean, I don't say those words. I just try to look them in the eye and try to make sure that they get that they can trust me. I'm not going to make them look bad. Right. <laughs> and so, uh, and then the other, you know, uh, the other thing is I try to be nice to them. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I may, I might make a joke at their expense or, you know, but not, I'm not mean in any way. And uh, what about what about uh, when you get the kid up there though? <laughs> well, those kids are delighted when they leave. That's true. You're talking about scaring the child. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I don't want to. I don't want to talk too much about that trick. Right. Because um, it's like a genuine. You know, it's like, as far as I know, um, I don't know of any other real jump scares. <laughs> in magic shows or i mean you know somebody wrote that in a review in las vegas saying mac king show has the only genuine (laughs) jump scare 
in Las Vegas shows. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, yeah, I never really thought about it like that. But, yeah, I think that's right. So yeah. I don't really, you know, I try not to talk about that too much in interviews or I don't have any video of that trick out there mm -hmm. or um and, no, we definitely but, don't so yeah I, you that. could you could make the case that 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 the, I'll tell you the first time I did that trick I was really 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 nervous <laughs> not because the trick might go wrong but because it just might be too good right or too scary <laughs> and you know leave that child in a quivering mass of jelly mm -hmm. on stage and that's really not what i'm going for and it, i have to say i mean it has happened a couple of times where uh the kid was genuinely scared and um i felt terrible mm. you know i mean you know the kid would you know i've, I've made a couple of kids um you know uncomfortable you know more than uncomfortable <laughs> and so but that's not the point of the mm -hmm. uh and i you know as soon as it happens it, it, i try to make eye contact with that kid and i try to look scared too and i i put my hand on my chest and i try to make eye contact with the kid going oh my you know it just so that they see with my expressions that, oh, my God, I can't believe that. <laughs> We're okay, though, right? <laughs> and, uh, meaning both of us. Right. And um, so, yeah, so you could make the case that I'm mean in that regard, but I, <laughs> that's not the point of what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to, you know, it's like a roller coaster, not, mm -hmm. uh, you know, not an earthquake. Right. <laughs> And so everybody's okay in the end, and you just got a nice little scare. It's you know, it's like going into a haunted house or whatever. There's no there's there's no genuine danger, but there's a you know that flash of fright that you mm -hmm. you get that big jolt of adrenaline. And so, but that's the other thing. I mean, I'm trying to pick the right kid for that too. Right. Uh, I'm. When I, when there's a bunch of kids, the way I I I I don't pick the I mean I do pick the kid, but I have the kid sort of self-select. I will the words I say are um, I need the bravest kid here, like nine ten years old. Who is the bravest 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 kid? Mm -hmm. And if there's a kid who is jumping up and down, waving their hands, and you know pick me pick me pick me, really you know. That's who I'm going to pick because they're they're not afraid to be vocal in public. You know, they're not afraid to show themselves. You know, put themselves out there. Mm -hmm. And so I want a kid who you know. And, and there's so, there's an element of confidence there too that um, really helps. You know, that kid not. You know, helps me feel like that kid's not going to be really genuinely freaked out long term <laughs> right and so uh so yes anyway so back to the so i'm I, and the reason also about, for not being mean i mean it's also i mean it's just courteous and that yeah, you know but also i like you said i have six people that i gotta get up and if i'm really you know mean oh, yeah. the first person the next five aren't going to want to participate. <laughs> mm -hmm. And so um, also um, there's lots of, I, I try to leave lots of opportunity for the person that's on stage with me to, I mean, I've got some destination that I want to get to that no one but me knows. Uh, but I, I don't mind taking some detours along that, along the way to that destination. Mm -hmm. Um, and then I, you know, I feel like I, I've been doing it long enough that I can sort of guide us back to where I want to end up. Uh, but I don't mind going off the script, and I don't mind if they do something hilarious. I'm hoping that they do something hilarious. I mean, I try to, there's lots of stuff. There's a number of, there are a number of things during the show where uh, I give them, you know, sort of a psychological or whatever subliminal push to do certain actions that you know I want them to do but they don't know I want them to do and mm -hmm. 
the audience thinks it's an accident, and so. Um, yeah, so I've seen your, on my your show multiple to get that times. To happen. What's that? <laughs> oh, I, I've seen your show multiple times. I think I have the same revelation at the same time as everyone who's seen your show many times has had. Oh, he makes that happen. Yeah, that wasn't an accident. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, right. And so, uh, yeah, and there's three or four things like that, maybe more throughout the show. And mm-hmm. um, so, none of you know, every so often none of them happen. Sometimes one of them happens, but they're not, they're not 100%. Um, and it's always... Striving to get those things to happen also keeps me on my toes, mm-hmm. and um, so. But the, the but the main thing with dealing with people from the audience for me is uh, not treating them like props. I mean, they're humans, right. and you know, I meet them at the stairs, and I, uh, you know, and I I listen when they talk, uh, and I respond genuinely to what they say or what they do. And sometimes you see people who use audience members in their show, and the show's the same no matter who's up there with them. And, right. Um, and I think there's, you know, my goal, you know, I read this somewhere, and I've, it, I feel like it, I want to make it apply to my show as much as I can, that I'm really not, this was about something else, not magic, but I'm going to say it in the magic in terms of magic shows, mm-hmm. I'm really not in the magic show business. I'm in the experience business. Mm-hmm. And so I want people, when they leave, I want them to feel like that they saw a show that no one else in the world will ever see. And that they 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 were there the day such and such happened. And, uh, and that's a, you know... That's a hard thing to pull off, mm-hmm. uh, but it, that's what, to me, that's what separates you know live performing from television. Is you know you really want people to go, man, I don't have any idea what the hell is going to happen next, and I don't think he does either. <laughs> um, and that's a you know that's a really nice place for the audience to be, and. Um, so, uh, and so part of that, a big part of that is listening, not just to the people on stage, but the people in the audience and, you know, responding accordingly, you know, genuinely listening and responding. And it's a dialogue, not just a recital. Mm-hmm. And now, so. yeah, since we're talking about your stage so, show, um, somebody did write in and they are in awe of how you're able to make um, smaller tricks, like you said, play big without a camera uh, do you have any any ways or tips to make that happen for anyone else um man it's well yeah i mean you you play broader i mean there was a in this book that i was talking about this henry hay book not the amateur magician's handbook which i love and i got later in my life but mm-hmm. the the my first experience with henry hay was this learn magic book from my grandfather and there's a drawing in there um where he's uh, putting an object, he's you know it's a false transfer from one hand to the other, right? And mm-hmm. so he's putting this object from his right hand into his left hand, and it's just it's two drawings, and one uh, your his. I wish we you know I wish there was visual accompaniment to this, but I'm going to mm-hmm. try to describe this if I can. Um, I'm sitting here with my phone and. Uh, I'm doing this in my, and I'm right now. I'm doing it with my hands, trying to, and I'm going to try to describe what I'm doing. Okay. I am holding. Uh, I don't do billiard balls in my act. I used to, mm-hmm. uh, but it's one of my favorite things to play with. Uh, mm-hmm. And so I have a set of fakini billiard balls here at my desk that I, oh, cool. when I'm on the phone or whatever, uh, I'm uh, twirling the ball between my fingers or just screwing around with them because I uh, one of my favorite things to play with so I have a I have a billiard ball right now in my right hand I'm holding it between my thumb and index and middle finger and uh, my palm is my hand my right hand is palm up and I'm taking that ball into my left hand and I'm doing it like it um, right in front of my belly button 
and that's kind of how you would do it normally if you're putting the taking a ball into your left hand from your right. Uh, you just. But if you if I and I'm facing directly forward, but if I turn slightly to the right or to my left, uh, we'll say, and I hold that ball up and I hold my left hand even with my face, and I put that ball and you see it against my palm. And you can now you can see that from the back row, and all my more attention is if I turn sideways. So I, and uh, anyway, there was two drawings like that. There was this, you know, this sort of normal way to transfer an object from one hand to the other, and the stagey way, uh, more broad. And it's just you know it makes a big difference. Mm-hmm. You know the way you position your body and your arms and your elbows, and if you. Um, one of the things he talked about was Henry Hay, I mean, um, is not having your elbows pinned to your sides. They're out, and your arms are out, and you're just playing. You know, you're up on the balls of your feet a lot. You're moving around. Uh, you're, you go back and forth, forward and backwards, left and right. Um, you're just making it as big as you possibly can. And, you know, it if I did it, if I did it like that, you know, just me and you sitting here in my office it would look ridiculous. <laughs> but uh, but you know, on stage it seems necessary, and right. and I also, you know, this is also, I mean, there's everybody you watch, you can get influences from. Like you wouldn't think that Ricciardi, for instance, would I would have anything in common with Ricciardi but one of the things if you see the show a few times you go oh, man he's throwing stuff around a lot <laughs> I, I uh you know I mean I I'll, th- I'll throw a pin up in the air and catch it I'll throw yeah. a big Newton up in the air and catch it I throw stuff across the stage and try to land it in my suitcase and I um uh I the chop cup kind of thing with the oatmeal tub that I do mm-hmm. Uh, I'm spinning that around in my hands. It's a, I mean, it's a little flourishy for what you would think, you know, a hillbilly guy <laughs> from Kentucky, how he would handle stuff. But, uh, but it, it just makes the everything a little bigger and play a little bigger. And uh, I don't know whether that's. It's also an attitude too. I'm just I. Uh, so I'm I'm not the I'm not the most confident seeming person on stage, but but mm-hmm. these physical actions sort of belie that uh, notion, and because they're that kind of stuff is is pretty confident, and uh, so there's some something. What I'm trying to get across, I mean, I, like, again, this is all just bullshit in my brain, but <laughs> but maybe it makes a difference. Uh, uh, and I like thinking about it, and I like trying to act these things out. And uh, So one of the things is I'm trying to get across is uh, these physical things, to- tossing this stuff up in the air and catching it without looking and doing things like that. Mm-hmm. Somehow, in the back of people's minds, they go, they settle down, and they know that they're in good hands. And there's that I do somehow know what I'm doing, and uh, it's all going to be okay. Mm-hmm. Well, you just mentioned fig newtons, and uh, Eric Henning wrote in and wants to know what flavor of fig newtons do you prefer? Uh. What did you call them? Fig Newtons? Yeah. So the fig <laughs> flavor. <laughs> I know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I, uh, you know, it's funny. Uh, when I started using them, there were only fig Newtons. Mm-hmm. There weren't any raspberry or apple or uh, other flavors. Uh, and I'm still a fig traditionalist. And I'm a Fig Newton traditionalist. You know, there are generic Fig bars, uh, which I've tried, 
um, not only do they not taste as good, but uh, they don't work as good in the show mm. somehow. Mm-hmm. They um, they come apart quicker. <laughs> it's generic. It, it's not brand brand name. Yeah. <laughs> well, and that that brings me to my my next question. Um, you eat. Or you have a lot of things in your mouth during your I know, show. I know, it's a very yeah. oral show, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, what's the most uh, enjoyable thing to eat? <laughs> in the show? Yeah. Uh, man, I don't... I don't eat any... Fi- I don't actually eat any Fig Newtons mm-hmm. in the show. Right. But whenever I open a new pack in the dressing room, mm-hmm. I always have two or three. Uh, I... Uh, I actually open those, I open the package, you know, a few days before I actually use them in the show mm-hmm. so that they get a little harder so they don't ah, gotcha. get all goopy in my pocket. Mm-hmm. Um, so I I only eat them right when I open the package, you know, so every, once a week or so I'll have two or three Fig Newtons. And, but, so that's my favorite thing to eat that's in the show but during the show uh i eat a little bit of carrot and i like that the best Uh, there's uh you know worms and goldfish and guinea pigs and Mm -hmm. uh uh, so none of those are that tasty yeah a lot of animals and i think you you have all the animals in your mouth at some point yeah they do yeah (laughs) yeah i I, you know when i originally was going to do the guinea pig uh, eating the guinea pig, the the line I w- wrote for it uh, was, uh, so the guinea pig is sitting there, and I would say, uh, so there's lots of livestock in the show. There's been an earthworm, a goldfish, and now a guinea pig. Do you have any idea what those three animals have in common? What? And And then I would... I would say they're all delicious and pick up the guinea pig and eat it. <laughs> uh, but uh, but then I, uh, and that's what I did for a little while, but then the uh, naming the guinea pig Colonel Sanders and mm-hmm. uh, was better for me. <laughs> yeah. Better laughing. Right. I think they're both funny. <laughs> yeah, no, they're, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> uh, how does the guinea pig taste? <laughs> yeah, it's very sweet. <laughs> nice. Um, so, yeah, I, I, that, that brings me to one of the last questions. We ask everybody this question, and it just leads to some really interesting opinions. And i like to know, is there anything that you believe about magic that you think other magicians might disagree with? Yeah, that's kind uh, of putting you on the spot. If you don't have an yeah, answer, that's uh, okay. Well, <laughs> that I think other magicians don't agree with. Mm-hmm. Oh, man. Uh, you know, I've been really lucky. I mean, I, I, I'm thinking, I'm talking what before I'm thinking. So mm-hmm. uh, I'm still <laughs> thinking, so I maybe we'll have a different answer here in a minute. But <laughs> one of my, re- I'm really lucky in that. Uh, I have a lot of really, really smart magician friends. You know, I mean, I've been really lucky to be good friends with Mike Caveney and David Williamson, Derek Delgadio, Penn Gillette, Lance Burton. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, I'm sure somebody will be mad that I left them out of that. John Carney. Uh, but uh, so I have a lot of really smart friends. Uh, and uh, Max Maven. Uh, Max has probably had more. You know, Lance too. Those two guys, Lance Burton, Max Maven, had more uh, influence on my show than maybe anybody. Billy mm-hmm. Combs in there too, but a lot of those. Everybody's in there. Uh, so I'm just rambling while I'm thinking about an opinion I might have that <laughs> magicians. Anyway, my point was that because I have such smart friends, it'd be stupid to disagree with them. Right. Um, <laughs> uh, 
uh i mean if you don't have an answer that's that's perfectly okay <laughs> um I've got, I've got another question actually. Okay, yeah, I think forgot you, to ask, ask me yeah. another question, and maybe we'll come back to that, or maybe not. I, right yeah. now, I just can't think of anything that I believe that, you know. I mean, uh, Penn says to me, you know, when we're talking about our acts or our philosophies, and he said, you know, all you do, people don't understand this. All you're doing is doing everything exactly right the way everyone tells you how to do it. When you, if you read a magic book about uh, constructing a show or, or a character or a, a trick or uh, uh, performance, all you're doing is everything that they tell you to do. You haven't thought of anything smart. <laughs> you're just doing everything that people tell you to do, but no one ever does that. <laughs> right. So, uh, there's that. So, what was your other question? Oh, um, I just remembered you, and you mentioned Penn, so it's a perfect segue. So, thank you. <laughs> um, you went on Penn and Teller fool us, and um, didn't you fool them with your rope trick? Or you know, they they well, gave you the I, trophy I, I and everything. The, I didn't do the rope trick on I that. I thought you show. did. No, they said that you would yeah, have fooled no, them with yeah, the rope trick. That's yeah, right. Yeah, they said that. Uh, yeah, they they. I don't think the trick fools them anymore. Because they they come to the show, you know, Teller and Penn both, you know, come pretty regularly. Mm-hmm. You know, certainly every time there's something new or whatever, or if they have people that they want to bring. Right. Um. So they've been to the show multiple times. So mm-hmm. uh, I would be surprised if now that rope trick fooled them. <laughs> but I, I, it's not surprising to me that you know, the first few times it did. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, yeah, they I, they say that, but I think they're just being kind mm-hmm. at this point. At, at one point it was true, but I don't think it's true anymore. Yeah. Well, I think they've been kind to some other people when they say we know how it's done, but we didn't see it. Yeah. So, yeah. I was just going to ask, was that uh, was that just kind of like fun for you going on the show? Like it was. Yeah, just, it's really you know, fun. I mean, they're mm-hmm. just really, you know, I mean, the last time I was on, uh, I got like the greatest quote ever. Penn said, I, "I'm paraphrasing, but I mean this is pretty close because I mean I see it all the time because now it's on posters and billboards and shit." <laughs> but uh, <laughs> something like um, Matt King is the greatest comedy magician living today and maybe to have ever lived. Mm-hmm. Uh. And so how could you ask for anything better than that? Right. Uh, that, that, that's so that's, amazing. you know, going on and not fooling them. But, uh, I mean, I, I, I knew I wasn't going to fool them, but mm-hmm. uh, I was hoping for good video and for people to see some tricks that I like. I mean, that's the thing about that show that people, you know, lay people don't understand, I think. Right. It doesn't matter if you fool them. What you're, mm-hmm. you know, they, and they don't care either. It's just a, Yeah, that's they built the show to showcase. <laughs> Yeah, it's a showcase, and it, so it's like you know, it's like going on, you know, any television show. You know, if you don't look at it as a prize, you just look at it as a way for people to see you. It's really valuable. I mean, and, and you know, I mean, I have. It's funny, I have more people after the show. I mean, it's been a year and something, two years since I was on. Um, us, but I still have people come up and say, you know, we, we're here because of what we saw on, on Fool Us. And more than, you know, I mean, from more than from Letterman when I did Letterman or whatever, I mean, that show really does uh, what has been a really nice showcase for me. Right. I think it's insanely popular with like lay people. And I mean, I know you already have the residency at Harrah's, but I think that show has launched a good number of careers. Yeah, I mean, it's launched a good number of careers, and it's just, you know, I mean, like I said, it's sold a number of tickets for me. So right, it's, right. Yeah, it's great. Mm-hmm. I, I'd like to ask you if you have any just last piece of advice for anybody that, like, might be listening and just wants to be a magician and just just want some advice from 
Well, there's thing. only there's really only two things, and uh, you know, either you, uh, you know, people. There's really only two things. Mm-hmm. Uh, do as many shows as you can. Don't worry. Don't ever worry about money. Mm-hmm. Uh, do as many shows as you can. Do as many shows as you can. Do as many shows as you can. And um, this is not just show business, but in all of life. Um, but particularly in show business, it you know during a doing a magic show, uh, be a good listener. Mm-hmm. Those are my only two advice. Do shows, be a good listener. Well, I think that's great advice, and thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Mac. Hey, no, thanks Harris. for having me. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I will see you soon. I hope. <laughs>